Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So, that being said, today we get to continue our Reclaim series. We have been uh, walking through the book of 1 John. And uh, week one, we reclaimed our light, like our faith. And so that's the lights. If you're just joining us going, what is with the, the light bright board on the walls? Uh, we reclaimed our light that's represented um, in each of these light bulbs is, is the hearts that are here for Christ. And we've reclaimed our identity and our relationships, our kind of one anothering together. Today, what we're actually going to talk about is reclaiming your home, reclaiming your home. And I'm going to start with a quote from uh, Carrie Newhoff, and it's simply this, crisis accelerates change. Crisis accelerates change. Think about this in, in any facet of life. When you go through crisis, um, everything sort of speeds up. And so what we've been through in the, the COVID season, the crisis of that has accelerated a lot of change. Uh, kind of record number of job turnover, uh, relationships in and out, both kind of directions. The crisis brings people to where they were going to get. We just get there faster. And so what we're going to talk about related to that today, when we say we need to reclaim our homes, is we're going to talk about the concept of sanctuary. And I'm actually going to try to present to you in uh, less than 30 minutes what I'm just going to call a theology of your home. Okay. So sanctuary, as we know the word, you feel like, am I in the sanctuary? Isn't this the sanctuary? This is what we call it. Sanctuary is a place designed to be both communal and sacred. Um, Typically, when we talk about sanctuaries, we're talking about religious buildings. Um, And historically, sanctuaries, all kind of religious structures, have been safe places for a people. So in uh, in a war-torn country, people can run to the church, the synagogue, the temple, wherever, and they People will, will leave you alone. People will kind of, that's a, that's a sacred space. We're not going to bomb you there. We're not going to kill you there. And so if you can get into the sanctuary, you find safety. It's a place of refuge and asylum and safety. It is a place as well to seek holiness. It's why you're here, whether you know it or not, you are here to seek holiness. There's something happening here that's drawing us in. It's a place to seek God's presence. And so imagine, if you will, when we lived in South Africa, we had friends from Rwanda. Rwanda went through a genocide in the 90s. And they, they told stories of running to the churches in every village and town trying to escape the genocide. And the tragedy of that scenario was that um, years later, you can go in churches and there's just the floors littered with skulls and, and they didn't stop at the sanctuary. And yet that was their first inclination, is get to the church, get to the sanctuary, we'll be safe there. If you imagine in your mind the, the priest or the town vicar ushering people in, blessing them as they come in, offering them comfort and peace, outside of the chaos that they've been in, as long as there have been people, people have sought safety in holy places. It doesn't happen much anymore. If you come here at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, you're going to find the door locked. Um, That's just the way the world is now. Um, The doors lock. And sanctuary is sort of a Sunday morning concept for us. There is a new sanctuary in our society, and this is your home. Some of you even refer to my wife is... uh, excellent at creating a space where we feel safe and comforted, where she says the, the master bedroom is to be a sanctuary. It's where you can come in and just release the world's problems and take a deep breath. The problem is that we have changed the meaning of sanctuary in, in moving the sanctuary from um, a communal place of ministry into our homes. We've actually changed the meaning of sanctuary. And what we've done is highlighted the safety 
and private personal refuge part, and we've lost that communal ministerial part. And this happens because external forces shift our internal behaviors. This is important. External forces will shift your internal behaviors. Things you don't even realize are happening are changing the way that you react to the world around you. We've talked about this before, but I'll tell you it again. Um, Urban sprawl, so the the car culture, Robert's going to put a picture up on the screen of two houses in 1920s and the 2020s. So these are two different houses, uh, two different uh, layouts and floor plans. And, And what changed between 1920 and 2020 was car culture. Everything became about cars, and, and instead of needing to be connected, as you did in the 1920s with grid streets so you can get to uh, the trolley or the bus or your work, um, we now live on cul-de-sacs. And, and instead of life spilling out into the front yard because we're all in this together, car culture individualized us, and it made us, this is my pod, my space, my, and, and what we had is this change happened, whereas instead of walking straight into the living room as you do on the house to the left, you now walk into a highly guarded foyer that has multiple defenses set up, and you can't get to the living room unless you go through a couple other spaces. And, and all of life happens in the back of the house, where it's safest, where it's private. And if, if you were to have a party, it doesn't spill out into the front yard and into the street. It spills out into the backyard with its, with its privacy fence and its safe private land. It's a thing that happened. It was an externality that has changed our internal behaviors. It's changed the way that neighborhoods are built. If you live in a neighborhood that has been built since 1970, odds are it is built in this new way that instead of being on a grid, like if you're in BG and you're at Maple or Buttonwood or Church Street, and these are all just straight streets with cross streets. And the further you get out into the suburbs built since, you have cul-de-sacs and winding. I don't even know how to find my way through. They're, they're designed to slow people down. They're designed to create safety. The cul-de-sac is designed to create safety. Cars can't come through, so we're safe. Only one way in and one way out. Better easily to defend. So we're not going to go too much further into that. There's a reason I bring that up, though. And that, there, there's a reason it matters. Where we used to have connectedness as a priority, we now have privacy as a priority. Where we went from maximizing life and neighbors and connectedness, we are now about protecting life from our neighbors. We have ring doorbell cameras so we can make sure we want to answer the door. We've started playing defense in a lot of ways. We're playing defense. We're just trying to keep people in front of us. I got I to gotta keep you on in front of me. In 2020, COVID presented another external force, which is why we bring up this whole idea. COVID creates another external force that has changed our internal behavior. And if we're not careful, we won't recognize what it's done and we'll simply go with the flow. We've gone further into defensive modes. It accelerated what was already happening. This has already been happening, but COVID said, hey, your home is your safe place. It's your bubble. That's where you go to escape. That's where you can be yourself. It's where you can take your mask off. It's where you can be free and take a deep breath. And it started to train us that your home is the safe place for you. It is your refuge. It's your asylum. It's your sanctuary. And if we look at the, even the modern description on the right, you can't see it, but it, in the top right of that uh, 2020 house, you know, they don't even call it a master bedroom anymore. It's called an owner's retreat. <laughs> what kind of language is that? It's an owner's retreat. It's a retreat from the world. It's a way to get away. It's a way to escape. It literally says it's where you escape from the rest of the world. That's what the salesmanship is for the house. This is where you escape from the rest of the world. We are creating insider clubs and personal bubbles. The home has shifted from a place of communal mission and ministry to one of personal escape and entertainment. 
And it's happened slowly and imperceptibly. And in the last couple years, it's started to really speed up. The home has become a place of entertainment, not ministry. It's a place of escape, not of mission. This is where I go to get away from the world. The owners retreat in the back of the house. Imagine in that war-torn land. Imagine in Rwanda as the, the people come and they're banging on the door and the priest looks at his ring camera. He turns off the porch light and goes back into his study. Turns on Netflix and goes, not today, people. I, this is my retreat. Don't you know this is my safe place? Today, we are going to reclaim our homes as true sanctuaries in the true meaning of the word. We want to burst the bubble that COVID created, so we might again use our homes as places of missional ministry and asylum and hope for the hopeless. We have to rewire the way we've seen our homes and the way that we've been encouraged and, and, and incentivized. Buy a bigger television, get a camera on the front door, don't be bothered. This does not mean, and maybe you should hear this, this does not mean you cannot rest and recharge at home. Okay? It doesn't mean you can't lock your front door. It doesn't mean you can't have a camera on your front door. I have one too. It's still available for you as a place to rest and recharge. It's still a safe place for you, but it can't only be that. And if we're not careful, what we don't know we've lapsed into is a place where it's become only that. That ministry happens out there, but in here, it's just for me. So a theology of home is what we're aiming for. First John 4, 19 John writes, we love because he, Jesus, first loved us. This is the, the core verse of the theology of the home. We love because he first loved us. We pour out because he first poured out to us. We are motivated and incentivized not by what it gains for us. We're motivated and incentivized by what Christ did for us. So you say, that's nice. That's not really about the home, though. So you're taking it out of context. I agree. We established in week one that the book of 1 John was about Gnosticism, that John is combating Gnosticism, which was this way, this kind of new way of thinking that said religion and, and faith was personal enlightenment. I have mine, you have yours, I have mine. And that all physical matter was evil. So everything physical was evil. And so I decided my personal enlightenment, and then I keep the world at bay. That was Gnosticism. And John writes this letter to remind us that Jesus was flesh and blood, that our faith is physical, that it's not something we think up, it's something we live out. Your faith is not something you thought up, it's something you are encouraged to live out. And so we have to practice our faith in a physical world, and so what we're going to do as we go through this theology of the home is we're going to take a little trip through Scripture, so um, just buckle up, we're going to go. A little history from the Old Testament. Let's start in Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me and everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive, gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and goat hair and ramskins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for light, spices for the anointing oil, for fragrant incense, onyx stones, other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then, this is what matters here, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. God tells his people what to do, what to bring, and he's going to give them instructions on how to make what we come to know as the Ark of the Covenant, how to make this sanctuary, this dwelling place for him. And he calls it a sanctuary. It's the place where God dwells. He says, I will be in that sanctuary. That's where we will commune. It's the dwelling place of God. It is the place in which God is now contained, even though God can't be contained, but that's how they saw it. The original Ten Commandments stone were put in. They carried it around 
like you would carry a king around, except they carried the true king, the one God around. And they sought, the Israelites did, to get it to the promised land. That was the goal. Get it to the land of milk and honey that was once promised. And it's important to note that nobody owned it. This wasn't personal private property with a privacy fence around it that somebody's got the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's over there at the cul-de-sac. Nobody owned it. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This applies universally, but it's, it's specifically for us. We have to remember the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So who owns your house? So the Ark of the Covenant belongs to God and my house belongs to God and everything belongs to God. My children belong to God. My wife belongs to Everything belongs to God. It is his for his purpose and his use. We're going to come back to that. Once they got the Ark of the Covenant into the promised land, they place it into a thing called the Holy of Holies. When they build the temple, they build a special room and, a, and kind of a special room within the special room called the Holy of Holies. It's where the presence of God would sit. But it was so holy that they put a curtain in front of it, a veil, thick, floor to ceiling. And only certain priests from a certain sect of, uh, of Judaism were able to attend to it. And everybody else, you couldn't even get close to it. Because sin couldn't be in the presence of God. You would be destroyed if you got too close to it. And so the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, lived behind the curtain. This is where God's holy presence resided amongst his people. So then what happens when Jerusalem is destroyed? We're doing history. Jerusalem gets destroyed, and nobody knows what came of the ark. There may have been a movie about that in the 80s you've heard of. They're still looking. But as things go, they rebuilt the temple that they take their land back. They rebuild the temple, and they again, even lacking an ark, they build another temple. And they build another holy of holies, another special room in which the presence of God is said to be contained with another curtain shrouded by the veil. This is when you've, you've seen the pictures of the, the modern Jews praying at the Western Wall. And they're shouting and carrying on, and they're up against the wall, and they're taking little pieces of paper and sticking it in the cracks of the wall. Why? Because as tradition goes, as geography would tell us, that's the closest they can get to the Holy of Holies. It's on the other side of that wall. That the temple is now run by Islam. That it's a mosque. It's a functioning mosque. So the Jews aren't allowed into the temple, but that's as close as they can get to the place of the Holy of Holies. And so it is still a pilgrimage place for Jews all over the world to go to that spot and get as close as possible to the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence is contained. Keep going. Matthew 27. Now, from the hour, the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he says, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So let me put these things together. Have you ever had a recipe that calls for buttermilk? That's aggravating, isn't it? You're ready. You're going to make the thing. And it says you need buttermilk. And I don't know about you, I have never once in my entire life accidentally had buttermilk in the fridge. There's no, it's just, no one has it. The Amish, some of the Amish are snickering at me. They're going, we have it all the time. Listen, what do you do when you don't have buttermilk? Milk and a tablespoon of vinegar. You put milk with a tablespoon of vinegar, and it is a worthy substitute. If you don't have buttermilk, you can do milk and a tablespoon of vinegar, and you have a worthy substitute. It satisfies the recipe. It will taste the same. You're going to be okay. But you have to have milk 
in that tablespoon of vinegar, and, and then you can replace it. It's a substitution that you can make, and as a result, you can go on with the recipe. It satisfies the recipe. Up until this point, God's presence was guarded. He was too holy to be in the presence of mere sinners. So then Jesus takes the cross. 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love, John writes. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning sacrifice. This is a phrase known as substitutionary atonement. That Jesus satisfies God's wrath that belonged to us. That we, because of our sin, had earned God's wrath. Jesus was the worthy substitute for that. So his death on the cross removes our sin. It makes our sin powerless. He satisfies the punishment of our sin. So what, you say? So when the veil is torn and the curtain comes down, we are no longer separated from God. He has been a worthy sacrifice. He satisfies the recipe of wrath. So we no longer need a priest. If the veil is torn, we no longer need a priest. There's no longer a priest that is the go-between between us and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies has been unleashed. And you and I now have direct access, not needing a priest. Jesus is the true priest, the high priest. He's given us access. But wait, there's more. Once the veil is torn, the cat is out of the bag. If our sin is no longer powerful, then the holiness of God need not be contained. We don't have to think that the holiness of God lives behind some shroud. The holiness of God no longer needs to be contained because our sin has been made powerless. So his presence can be among us, Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So when the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Where did it fill? The house. Notice that. Not the mountaintop, not the valley, not the temple, the house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is not a party trick. The Spirit of God invades the house. The Spirit of God has been loosed from the Holy of Holies. The Spirit of God is now in the house. The Spirit of God is now in the people. And they are filled and so where is the presence of God now? Is it with the priest behind the curtain? No, the curtain is torn. The Spirit of God is now in the people, in the house. God is on the move, and he cannot be contained. He is alive, and he is active in us. And the evidence of his love is the Spirit alive and acting through us. So the Holy of Holies now resides where? And the Jews are praying at that wall. I felt sad when I was in Israel. They're praying at that wall because they're as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies, and they don't know. The Holy of Holies is in you. You contain the Holy of Holies. You contain the Spirit of God. You contain His very essence. We don't have to go to some wall. He is in us. He has been loosed. So bring this home. Come full circle. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet God, you had to get really lucky to like see him in a burning bush, or you got to go through the priest with a certain number of offerings and you got to go through the whole step. Because that's the only place you could find him. That's where he resided. Now, with the Holy Spirit, the reality is that he resides in you. So where you are is where God resides. You have to, you have to take this home with you. Where you are is where God resides. 
So what happens when someone wants to meet God now? Do they come here? They look for a burning bush somewhere out on the way? People can meet God through you now. It's a whole different system. God is loosed. And now you are his ambassador. You are his representative. You are the dwelling place of the Most High. In a world of division and chaos and fear, there is still a sanctuary available. There is still a place where you can retreat from danger. There's still a holy place set apart for the world, even when the church doors are locked. There's still a place where God resides and where people can meet him. And have you ever heard the phrase, there's a church on every corner in that town? That's true. Anywhere there are Christians, there is the church present. There is sanctuary present. There is holiness present. And so if I walk through the neighborhood and I go, Christian, 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 if those houses are Christian houses, that is the church loosed into the world. And that is sanctuary to be found. That is safety and hope. That is refuge and asylum. That is what God has done. When the curtain tears, it isn't just for us to have a, a goosebump moment on Easter. It's to signify to us that the whole thing is flipped, that the rules have changed, and we have to learn to reclaim that because we've lost it because culture says your home is your safe place. And your home is a safe place. For whom? It's God's home. He owns it and everything in it. Your front yard, your back porch, your pool, your basement media center, whatever you have, that's God's to use for his glory. This is why we put so much energy as a church into community groups. We don't actually believe that, that this thing that's happening right now is the place of ultimate transformation. I think the place of ultimate transformation is when we get into real life with each other and the Holy Spirit of God moves amongst us in relationship and intimacy. This is great, and it's exciting, and it's equipping, and it can be inspiring, and yet real life doesn't happen in here. The most intimate and effective place of ministry is in the home. It is in the reclaimed sanctuaries that dot the map all around us. So what's the vision here? The vision is that at, at current, when somebody's going to join a new community group, usually it's because they've filled out a card or they've met Nick. And then Nick is able to connect them, and he kind of plays matchmaker, and he goes, hey, would you mind having some people? Hey, would you mind this group? Hey, they only have Tuesday nights. Are you sure you can't have? And then Nick gets a new person into a community group. That's the current path. My hope for us is that that would not be the path anymore, that we are calling Nick, telling him, hey, we got six new people in our community group. How did that happen? Well, they've never been to church. They're part of us now. I invited them to my home. I invited them into my life. I invited them into my safe space. We gave them sanctuary, and they're now tied in with us. They're, they're part of our group. You want their names? Yeah, that'd be great. Do they come to our church? No. Guess what? I got people in my community group I've invited that don't come to our church, and I love it. They go to another church in town, but they found relationship and intimacy with us. And I said, I don't care where you go on Sunday. We want to do life with you. And if this is the place for you to do life, this is where you belong. And they're going through a terrible season. And they're found with people who know them and love them. They don't come to church here. I don't need them to come to church here. It isn't about where you attend church. Church is out there. You are the church extended. You don't go to church. You are the church wherever you go. And so we have to reclaim that idea and get out of the community and begin to offer sanctuary to people in desperate need. You can invite someone to know God without ever asking them to come to church. You can invite them to the holy place that is your home. This has been our legacy as believers since the early days. 
Christians were first called Christians because of how they reacted with the city around them, because of how they welcomed people in. So for the poor, they provided assistance. For the disease, they provided health care. For the lost and abandoned, they provided love and security and family. This is what we do. And we have to reclaim that and not let the culture steal that and convince us that your home is about entertainment or escape. We have to reclaim our legacy and reclaim our home. This is about mission and ministry happening every single day, that God has opportunities lined up for you. You say, well, what are those opportunities? I wish I knew what they were. I would lean in if I knew what they were. What are your neighbors' names? You want to name the opportunity? Name your neighbors. That's the name of the opportunity. They are desperate for meaning. They are desperate for hope. We don't have an owner's escape. We have sanctuary. We have to remember. We started with this idea that you love because you were first loved by God, that we love because he first loved us. So you have to always live out of that. You were lost and lonely. He loved radically. You were abandoned and alone, and he came and found you. He swept you into his family. He brought you into his house. He gave you hope and purpose. The Holy of Holies has invaded our lives, and we now have the opportunity to love the same way. Our culture is desperate for this. The people in your neighborhood or your apartment complex, the people on your dorm floor, the people on your cul-de-sac are desperate and they are searching for meaning anywhere they can find it. They're searching for the promised land. They're searching for the holy of holies, for that transcendent thing that's going to tell them that there's life beyond kind of the meaninglessness and the mundane day-to-day. My prayer today is that you might open your doors and show them what that is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have invaded our space. Remind us that we are not simply here performing religious rites and rituals, but we are your people, infused with your spirit, that we are your ministers. God, remind us that we have a role to play, that we have opportunities all around us, that our lives are to be poured out in love and service of others. Father, I pray that we would see each and every one of the places we live as sanctuary, and we would recognize that those around us are in desperate need of what we have to offer in you. So God, give us courage, give us boldness. Remind us in the mundane days, remind us on the average Thursday where we get up and just go through the motions. God, remind us that you, you came and found us. And on our worst day, you provided your best. That we might move closer to modeling that, to representing you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit that invades this place, that invades our hearts. God, I pray that you would use it to push us forward for your glory and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.